Well, I don't know if this is a joke, but it is, it is the truth. I had somebody, you know, oh, y'all sit down, by the way. I had somebody ask me, uh, of course, not an unusual question for a minister to get, but what did I think about, you know, uh, you know getting, getting your body turned back into ashes when you die as opposed to being buried? And, of course, you know, that, that um, is not a problem. Whatever you want to do with your body is fine. You know, if you, as a matter of fact, I said, I think I'm going to do that. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get put in an incinerator and get turned into ashes when I die. You know, God, when in the last day, God can bring ashes back together, dust back together. It doesn't matter. Um, and I said, I'm going to do that because I'm going to have my ashes taken up over the Mall of America and scattered over the Mall of America so I can be sure my wife will visit me. <laughs> It's funny, so it qualifies as a joke, but it's a true story. Amen. It's a true. It's a true story. All right. Well, listen, I've got a lot of things I want to say this morning, and um, uh, because there is no more important a subject than Revelation, and uh, it is the basis of our growth in faith. Uh, faith requires that the Holy Spirit illumine the Scripture for you. That's what the uh, verse in Romans 10, 17 means, you know, that it is the Word of God, the rhema word, spoken to your heart by the Holy Spirit uh, that you hear, which brings faith. So, you know, there isn't anything more significant than Revelation in terms of your experience of life on this earth. Yeah, you, you make Jesus your Lord, you're on your way to, you're on your way to heaven, but... You're not going to need faith up there, but you need it down here in order to experience God's best, His will, His blessing for your life. And it's not enough to know the Word. A lot of people know reams of the Word, committed to memory, but they can't, you know, there's no revelation. It doesn't really mean anything to them in the sense of how they live their daily life. So, revelation is huge. And when we're talking about revelation, I think there's one point of revelation even more significant than the rest, according to Jesus in Mark chapter 4, when he delivered the parable of the sower, which in the interest of time I'm not going to read. Uh, I think most of you know the parable. That's why I'm not going to take time to read it. Uh, a parable is a natural earthly uh, analogy that is intended to illuminate spiritual truth. It's all a parable is. Jesus taught in parables for the most part, using things that people understood in the natural to demonstrate spiritual truth. And so, the parable of the sower, of course, is, is an agricultural analogy that the people of the day thoroughly understood. Uh, it was that kind of uh, community that uh, most populated uh, the, the, the day of the Bible. And so they understood those analogies and the parable of the sower. And of course the process of sowing seed, cultivating the seed in order to produce the desired harvest. And this is intended to illuminate spiritual truth. But the disciples didn't quite get it. And he said to him in verse 11, unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. And then, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that sin they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, less, unless at any time they should be converted, their sins should be forgiven them, now it's given unto them to know as well. But in other words, this says clearly to us, don't ever argue Scripture with an unbeliever in an attempt to get them saved because they have no capacity to understand the Word. And uh, it would be a fruitless effort that usually pushes someone further away from the Lord than bringing them in. Uh, but at any rate, the word mystery, as we shared yesterday morning, I guess it was, seems like I've been here a month. <laughs> Thank you guys, by the way, for inviting me, and uh, I count this a privilege, but 
At any rate, I think it was yesterday morning we talked about the definition of musterion, the Greek word rendered mystery in the King James. Uh, and according to W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary, it says uh, that that which being outside the range of unassisted natural apprehension can be made known only by divine revelation and is made known in a manner and at a time appointed by God and to those only who are illumined by His Spirit. You know, I didn't used to have to I used to call these style glasses. It's a joke, you know. I need them sometimes. And um, thank God for them. Amen. But uh, at any rate, so we can understand that a mystery has to do with revelation. And of course, the whole Bible to them that are without requires, you know, uh, it, it surpasses nat unassisted natural apprehension. But once you're saved and you have the capacity to understand the Bible, there's a lot in here that uh, natural understanding can embrace. And that's why Isaiah 1.18 says, Lord says, come, let us reason together. And if you read that entire passage, the result will be, you know, uh, the, the event of salvation in a person's life. Uh, the blood of Jesus is, that, is where that natural uh, rationale will lead you. So there are some things, and especially as it, as it deals with your initial entrance into the kingdom, uh, you can understand naturally if you start with the right premise. That's the key to any successful rational process. If you start with the wrong premise, you cannot possibly wind up with the right conclusion. So the right premise is the Word of God. And that's what he means when he says, come let us reason together. If you start with the premise of the Word of God, you have been created with a rational capacity that can even bring you to the correct conclusion regarding salvation. I didn't mean to get into all of that. But the point being, there are some things that, you know, your, your rational process will illuminate to you, but not everything. And for believers, I think the things that are, are referred to as mysteries are the things that we have to know. You know, the Holy Spirit is going to be needed to illuminate this truth to us. And as we discussed the last time around, uh, positioning our lives for His ministry of revelation to be productive within us is an important part of growth in the Lord and the ability to see and understand what He has for us. Uh, but the thing that is most significant for me right now in this passage is in verse 13 when he said, Know you not this parable? How then will you know all parables? And I think I've already made the point that if you don't get what we call the parable of the sore, you're not going to get anything because it's that fundamental. It is that basic to life in the kingdom of God. The operation of, uh, you know, the kingdom of God it's, it's predicated on the parable of the sore, the principles that are illumined here. And he says that again in verse 26, so is the kingdom of God, as though a man should cast seed into the ground. He said, this is the way it works. And if you don't get this, you're really not going to understand much of anything. You'll spend most of your Christianity saying, well, I don't know why that happened, or I, I don't get this, or I just don't understand that. Because everything else emanates from the operation of this principle in the human experience, believer's experience. And so for that reason, I'm going to spend my next two times, this time and tomorrow, talking about the parable of the sower, which really is almost a misnomer. Because there's not much about sowing in this parable. We just understand everything we we read about sowing in the first verse uh, of Jesus' explanation, verse 14. He said, the sower soweth the word. There, everything else, uh, you know, is about cultivating the seed of that word that has been sown in your heart. This is how 
to cultivate the garden of your heart uh, so that you can experience the, the fruit bearing that he intends you to experience. Because bearing fruit as a believer is the only way you're going to be positioned to move into the other promises of God. Until you bear fruit, you're not going to be positioned to move into the other arenas of God's promise for your life. This book is full of promises. But this is the first step toward being able to receive those other promises. And this is hard for some people to embrace because the parable of the, of the sore has been, I think, terribly misunderstood and not correctly taught uh, for a long, long time, at least, uh, you know, in, in the circles that I've grown up in and as a believer. And so basically, you know, people take a look at um, sowing and reaping. They, they attribute this viewpoint to the parable of the sower, and they say, you know, uh, hey, the uh, Bible says in Galatians 6, 7 that God isn't going to be mocked. What a man sows, that's what he's going to reap in life. That's true, but that's got nothing to do with the parable of the sower. There are two functions that you have in regard to the seed that God wants planted in your heart and the seed that he wants you subsequently to plant in other people's heart. And that is that you cultivate the garden of your heart to produce the fruit that we want to see produced. This hasn't got anything to do with your harvest. Planting seed and reaping a harvest it are events that are subsequent to the outworking of what we call cultivating the garden of your heart, which is what we read about in the parable of the sower. Understand this using the agricultural analogy. Uh, if you're going to plant seed in somebody else's life, you have to bear fruit first because the seed is in the fruit. The seed in, in agriculture, I mean, uh, seed is either in the fruit or it is the fruit. And the, you know, in the case of nuts as an example, that is the fruit and it's also the seed, the nut itself. I'm not talking about people here. I'm talking about <laughs> agriculture. So the point is, until you become a fruit bearer in the kingdom of God, you have no seed to sow. Now, I'm going to talk about sowing and reaping a harvest tomorrow, which is totally different than what we're talking about now. We're talking about getting to the point where you can experience all of the promises of God because this parable is about cultivating a heart of faith. I said a heart of faith. Now, faith cometh to that heart, by hearing and hearing and hearing the word. Yes. On a, in the continuous present senses, I'm sure you've heard it taught, Romans 10, 17. You know, as you hear and hear the word, and the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart about that word, brings revelation. Now faith comes. Faith cometh at that point. And since Jesus said, your life is going to be unto you according to your faith, we know that receiving the promises of God uh, is dependent on your faith. Yeah, he, you know, he's a sovereign God, and by the operation of the gifts of the Spirit, he'll do things for you uh, throughout your life because he loves you and he wants to give you a little boost from time to time, but he doesn't say the just, those who have been justified by the blood, shall live by the gifts of the Spirit. He says the just shall live by faith. And so the parable of the sore is a representation of how you develop a heart of faith that is capable of being filled with the word that you hear. Capable of receiving and operating within the revelation that faith is going to bring when it comes. But if you don't do what we see in the parable of the sore, you can hear the word until you blue in the face. 
And, you know, it might reside in your heart momentarily. It might not even get in there, according to the parable. So, I want you to see this. This is, this is what this is all about. You know, the, the fruit bearing that comes as a result of cultivating the seed of God's Word that is sown in your heart is one event. Now, sowing and reaping is another event that happens later. You've got nothing to sow until you have fruit in your life. And so this should speak to the fact that uh, very clearly things that we often talk about sowing, you know, money, uh, cars, watches, we're not sowing at all. We think we are operating, or many in the body do, and, you know, in the principle of sowing and reaping, because we gave somebody a watch and now we're expecting 30 watches? I don't know. I, I, I hear this preached. And I hear it preached by people I love and respect, and, you know, but basically, that's why I think this parable is so important to understand. Not a lot do. And if you're going to understand the way things go down in your life, uh, you're going to have to know this. There are two things that are going to dilute the blessing of God in your life. One is not knowing and believing the authority and the dominion that you have as a believer because the enemy of your soul will come against you when you've done nothing to, to deserve it. Everybody wonders, you know, well, what did I do to deserve this? You don't have to deserve it. There's an enemy out there and he, he knows you represent his challenge and he is going to do whatever he can uh, to keep you from being significant, productive in the kingdom of God. That's going to happen no matter what you do. There's going to be a certain amount of things, hard places that come your way that you do have authority over. Because Jesus said there's tribulation in the world simply because we know who the God of this world is. It's Satan for the balance of this dispensation. And so there's tribulation in this world, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. If you're in him, you are an overcomer. But you have to know that you are. You have to believe that you are. You have to understand the power and the blood of Jesus. You have to understand the power of the name of Jesus and use them in faith in order to overcome. But if you do that and nothing changes, you know, I mean, a lot of people get really, you know, this brings a little doubt and unbelief into their life of faith. I've been believing God that this is, this is ended. It's over. It's done. You know, uh, we have authority in the name of Jesus by the power of the blood. But there's one other possibility. The Word says that God isn't going to be mocked. This is the way He made this creation to operate. This is the way the kingdom operates. If you're planting bad seed simply because you don't know or have revelation of the things that we should know about in the parable of the sower then you're not going to reap the harvest you desire. So the second place to look, in my estimation, is if the power in the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus doesn't seem to be producing the desired result. There's one other thing, you know, uh, life isn't going to change unless you change the seed you are planting. And you can't change the seed you are planting even though you may be well-intentioned, if you don't have a revelation in the fullness of the fullness of the, of the parable of the sore. I hate to keep beating this drum, but a lot of people over the years, myself included, uh, I've seen that this is a truth. So, you know, I mean, you're just going to run into some hard places because the world is a hard place to live, Period. You're going to run into some hard places because Satan is lining up, you know, uh, you as a target uh, and believing, he's believing, he's hoping uh, that, you know, continued contrary circumstance in your life, contrary to the word. You know, even, you know, uh, even though God loves you and gives you all these wonderful and precious promises, but that continued contradiction of circumstance will wear away your faith. You'll get weary and well done. But the other possibility is right here.
Am I sowing seed that I need to change? Because there are some things that will not change unless I change what I'm putting in the ground. So, all right. I had not meant to spend that much time um, getting us into the parable of the sower. Um, but then he, he begins explaining the parable in verse 14. The sower soweth the word. Now, this is not just a word off a page of the Bible. This is ideas, concepts, perceptions of life and reality that come from the Bible. By the stripes of Jesus you are healed is not a worldly idea. That comes from one place. That comes from the Word of God. And so we see, really, that the parable of the sword deals with the conflict of ideas that we're always going to have to address while we're on this earth. Because there's bad seed. Just as surely as the word of God is good seed, will produce the fruit that you want to have in your life in its final outworking. There's bad seed. That's ideas, concepts, perceptions of reality that are contrary to the word of God that are going to come through secular or humanistic thought. Uh, you know, so that's why I say, by the stripes of Jesus, you're healed. Certainly, it's not something that an unbeliever that is unaware of or doesn't care about the Word is ever going to accept. His idea is, no, I mean, that's not true. There are things that are going to, you get sick, you're going to die. They're going to kill you. You can't get, you, what are you talking about? You some sort of religious nut? That's the way they approach it. And so it's about a conflict of ideas. You're out in the world. That's where, and you're to be there because you're the bridge from the kingdom of God to the world around you. And, you know, God's going to use you perhaps in ways you don't even know or are not even aware of to bring people into the kingdom. Uh, so you're to be out there, but you're not to be affected by their views of life and reality. It's why the Bible says, what fellowship hath light with darkness, the believer, the unbeliever? None. But there's a difference between fellowship, which is a sharing of heart, and relationship, which is a bridge for God to use to get to them with the word they do need to hear. So you don't cut off and isolate yourself from the world. You embrace the world. But you do so without opening yourself to their ideas. Because that's what the parable of the sower is about. What kind of seed is going to get in your heart? Is it going to be the sort of idea that eventually chokes out the seed of God's word? Because he says that's what the world's ideas will do. We have the idea that, well, you know, if there's a conflict of ideas, God's word's going to come out on top. But interestingly enough, we see the principle in Scripture that the Word of God is not infectious. It doesn't just automatically infect the people that you're around. But the reverse is true for the world. They will infect you. And so you can't put yourself in a position or a posture where you listen, entertain, or even give a second thought to worldly, humanistic, secular thinking. I got to do better than this if I'm going to get through here. But these, these are important things to think about. The first thing the Lord says is the sower soweth the word. Or the ideas and perceptions of life and reality that come to us through the Bible. Now, um, that would imply that the soil represents the human heart which you will see as we continue reading. So spiritually, the analogy, the agricultural analogy, the seed and the soil, the seed is the Word of God, ideas from God that are going to be planted in the soil of the human heart. And so once that's understood, then he begins dealing with heart conditions that are not going to be conducive to that seed producing fruit. Same thing that we have to deal with in uh, the actual process of cultivating a crop. 
said the first thing that has to be done is the soil has to be prepared. You know, the, the, uh, these are they by the wayside. Wayside soil uh, was, you know, in this day and time, the soil that was walked on while uh, the sowers tossed the seed into the ground. And it got packed down. And so any seed that happened to uh, hit the wayside soil wouldn't penetrate because the soil was, was it was hard, hard soil. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't accept the seed. The seed would sit on the ground. Fowls of the air would come and devour it up. Would devour it up. And in the other two Gospels, uh, we are told that uh, there is no understanding. That's the connection. You know, that's where revelation is. Revelation comes, that, bring, it, that brings supernatural understanding, opens the eyes to truth. And where there is no revelation because the heart is hardened. Remember, the soil is analogous to the human heart. The heart has become hardened to the seed of God's Word, and it just lies just like a seed on wayside soil would lie the top of the ground. The fowls of the air would come and devour it up when there is no understanding, and that seed's just lying on the top, hadn't penetrated your heart, then, uh, you know, the enemy comes and devours the seed up. And so the first consideration for cultivating your heart is to be sure your heart is soft to the Word of God. Without taking time to deliberate this longer, uh, you know, I've preached an entire sermon on each one of these points. Uh, but I trust the Lord with you because uh, most of you are mature in the Word and, you know, to, to get the picture and that's that. Uh, but when you talk about uh, breaking up the fallow ground of the human heart, uh, I'm sure you understand what Hosea 10:12 says, which is, seek the Lord. Say, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Seeking the Lord. That's what prayer is. That is what communing with Him is. As you seek the Lord, it softens your heart. And so you have to have a regular time, uh, a regular time commitment where you spend time doing what? Seeking the Lord. Just communing with Him. Enjoying his presence, praying in the Holy Ghost, because you're keeping your heart soft. I mean, there are going to be things from the Word your flesh doesn't want to hear. It doesn't want to hear you can't eat the whole pecan pie. It doesn't want to hear that because, you know, your flesh has another idea altogether. That's a personal problem. I shouldn't have brought that into the, into the picture. But the point is, you know, there are things that your heart doesn't want to hear from the Word, you've got to be sure it's softened enough by the time you've spent seeking God, by the time you've spent in prayer. So we'll just call that uh, an understanding right now for keeping your heart pliable enough to receive even the hard things in the Word of God that your itching ears may not want to hear, but that you keep your heart soft enough to to be open to these things and those ideas that come from the Bible can be planted in the soil of your heart. But then once that has occurred, then arises the matter of stony ground. These are they likewise in verse 16, which are sown on stony ground who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness. I mean their, their hearts are soft enough uh, that hey, you know they get excited about the word they hear. They receive it. But it says in verse 17, they have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. They back off. Uh, and of course, you know, um, so the question here, the next consideration is once you have sought the Lord, prayed, your heart is soft enough to receive the word. Understand that's not sufficient to do the job you want because when persecution, affliction, that means adversity, hardship, when these kinds of things come, they get offended. It's like, 
well, this shouldn't be happening. This, the Word says some other things about who we are in Christ, and it shouldn't be this way. They get offended, they back off. How many times as pastors in here have you heard people say, well, I tried tithing for six months. I tried tithing or even a year or maybe two. But the windows of heaven have never been opened in my life. You know, it's been a hard thing. My stuff started breaking. Uh, that it, you know, I've had more trouble with my car, with my refrigerator, with my washing machine than I ever had before I started tithing. This isn't working. Well, they got offended because they didn't have any root. They received the word with gladness initially, looking for the open windows of heaven any moment. And that's good. You should. But, you know, eventually the power of disappointment, which is the frustration of expectancy, undermined their commitment to the word. And they didn't have enough root to hang in there until... Uh, God did exactly what he said he would do in the word of God. Uh, but, you know, there's a due season according to the word that has to pass in order for you to experience, you know, the result of the word that you want to have. So what do you do about the root problem? Well, according to Psalm 1, it says that if you delight, is that me again? Now, last night was a setup. This is for real. I need to turn this thing off. I'm sorry. Apologize about that. I'm whistling at myself. But anyway, um, in Psalm 1, we're told that if you're going to delight yourself in the Lord, and that means you're going to make him, you know, you're seeking him now. Your heart has been softened, uh, and you're delighting yourself in him in that regard. Uh, the next matter is to put down roots that are deep enough that you are likened to that tree planted by rivers of water where the roots go down deep, your leaf is not going to wither, and you will bear fruit in due season. Whatsoever your hand, you put your hand to will prosper. Amen? That's deep roots going down. Well, this is the guy or gal that meditates on the Word of God day and night, right? Yeah. That word meditate is important because it's the same Hebrew word translated in the next Psalm, Psalm 2 verse 1, why do the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing? The word rendered imagine is the exact same word rendered meditate in Psalm 1. So we can understand that meditation doesn't mean you're crouching in a corner somewhere, uh, you know, you know, just meditating or whatever, you, whatever imagery that might generate. No, it means to imagine. Imagination is a, a part of the way God created the human brain to work. It works this way for unbelievers as well as believers. But when you mentally image a uh, what your future probabilities might be. Now get this, it's important. Imagination never has to do with what happened, what's happening now. You don't need to imagine that you know. You imagine what might happen in the future. You have the ability to paint on the canvas of your mind future probabilities un, uh, having an outworking in your life somewhere down the road. In the unregenerate human being, somebody that's not saved, you know, usually that's imagination is fear-based. Because of what's happened in the past, they imagine a similar outcome in the future. So if they had gone in business uh, in the past and they had failed once or twice, it's like they're not going to go into business again because they imagine that same scenario occurring in the future. The source of imagination for an unsaved person is usually what they or someone else has already experienced in a certain, a certain arena of life. And so they draw from that and project future probability accordingly. 
That's dangerous. It's really dangerous. Because it generates a momentum in your life toward what your imagined future looks like. So if it's fear-based and you're imagining that because ain't so-and-so got the same kind of cancer that your mama got, it's in your family, and therefore you imagine that that could well be your future probability, you gotta, you got to stop that because it generates a supernatural momentum in that direction. We see that in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. You know, God said, we got to go down there and take care of this because nothing will be restrained from them that they imagine to do. Imagination sets up an irresistible momentum in your life, even in the life of an unbeliever. So if you don't learn to fill your imagination with the good things, bless God, that he's put in your heart and told you in the word. You need to fill the imagined future that you're going to experience. You need to paint on there those things. Forget all of the negative probabilities. I don't care what the odds makers say. It has nothing to do with the reality of the kingdom of God operating in your life. One of the most important things for a believer to do is to take time when you're with the Lord, seeking him, softening the soil of your heart. But part of the process is to let him begin helping you paint on the canvas of your imagination a picture of the future probabilities you believe you're entitled to. And this begins with the general truths of God's word, who you are in Christ. You're never going to face an impossible situation. You're never going to face something you can't overcome. Not ever. I don't care how bad it may seem to be at the moment. You can't let yourself ponder and consider those things up here because it begins generating a different sort of picture. Take the desires of your heart. If they're not counter to the word, they're given by God. Your carnal nature can generate desire, obviously. Desires of the flesh. But you know what the difference between that is and the things that God says about you, which will create desire also. Allow the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to create desire within you that gives your life a meaningful direction. And to keep yourselves on track, be aware of the fact that he's not going to give you a desire of the heart that he doesn't equip you to pursue in terms of natural and spiritual gifting. And so, you know, if you think you want to be an NFL most valuable player and you can't even catch a football, then I would suggest that uh, that doesn't match up with God's gifting for your life. And so gifting will always orient you toward the right kind of desire. Let those desires that are in there that don't contradict the word of God that obviously did not uh, come from or through your flesh, let them begin to shape your imagination. That, that happened for me at a young age with flying. My dad worked for Delta Airlines when I was born. And I, the first, you know, I can remember when I was three years old, sitting up in the cockpit on a pilot's knee, flying from point A to point B. And it's like I knew. I mean, that's what I wanted. That was the desire of my heart. That's where my heart went. And, uh, you know, as I got older and after I'd been saved, I got saved when I was 12 years old in a Southern Baptist revival and um, didn't know any word until many, many years later. But um, at any rate, I forget where I was going with this. I sat on the pilot's knees. We've traveled, and that was, the, that was the desire that I had. And later, as I got older, I began to feel like that was, that was an ungodly desire because it didn't have anything to do with the Word. You know, shouldn't I be desiring to go into the ministry or be a preacher or something like that? I mean, I, I, all I could think of was flying. And it almost cost me. Uh, God often will use desires as a part of preparing you for your calling 
that don't seem very godly, but they don't contradict the Word. There's nothing in the Word that says you can't work a secular job, be a witness there, or have a desire that doesn't take you toward ministry. You don't, it doesn't have to be to be a prophet or an apostle or pastor or anything else. Uh, but, you know, that was a, a misunderstanding that I had and uh, until the Lord finally told me, he said, no, you know, I'm preparing you exactly the way I want. Your military background, the flying, the business. He said, this is the way I want you prepared. And not necessarily anybody else, but you. And so basically, uh, my imagination was filled with imagery of flying, and that's where my life took me. It, it produced an irresistible momentum. I finished at the top of my class in pilot training, Air Force pilot training, uh, because that's all I thought about. Lynn would, you know, I married her about halfway through pilot training, and uh, uh, she, she would get aggravated with me because, you know, the next day's flights, you know, for a little over a year uh, would occupy my mind when I got in bed and I'd see myself going through that next flight, whether it was aerobatic, uh, navigation, formation, air combat maneuvering, I would go through it, you know, sitting there in the bed, call that flying the bedpost. <laughs> but uh, I would imagine that. And, you know, and the flights, if I spent time doing that, that's the way the flights would go. You know, even the uh, uh, professional basketballers have learned that if they imagine themselves making three-point shots, one after the other, or free throws, one after the other, they imagine it. It has as much positive effect on their performance as being on the court actually doing it. Because your imagination generates a momentum in the, in the direction you take. Gosh, I got I to gotta move on. But this is what putting down deep roots is. This is how you put down the roots. When you see it on the screen of your mind, whatever it is that God's calling you to do, whatever it is that uh, has filled your imagination, you're putting down deep roots that will enable you to withstand the pressure of contrary circumstance when the heat's on and the persecution and the affliction comes this way. If you, this is what you see then you'll come right through that stuff. You need to know this. If it's not the name of Jesus or the power of your authority and the blood of Jesus that's getting you the freedom, the deliverance you want or need, start thinking about what, what occupies your imagined future probabilities. Don't let the enemy creep in there with any uh, any imagery of lack or insufficiency or inability. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And you need to see that. You need to see yourself as a superman or a superwoman in the outworking of God's plan for your life. You need to see it. And, and you know, perhaps this is, this is an area uh, that you need to be attentive to. But once you can see it, you can have it. That's the principle of God's Word. When the clearest reality in your mind of your future life's outworking, the clearest reality is what God has spoken to you in His Word and by the Holy Ghost. You're on your way, friend, and there is nothing hell can throw at you to stop you. Amen. That's the simple fact of the matter. So then, heart condition. What's going to happen to the word that you are hearing and hearing and hearing? The word will always work. You hear enough of that word, you know, yeah, it's going to affect you, but have you prepared your heart to receive the word so that it can produce everything the Lord intends? This is the, this is the process of growing in faith. The next three things we see are ideas that compete in your heart with God ideas. He said they fall in three categories. 
Every worldly, secular, humanistic idea, contrary to the Word of God, can be put in one of these three categories. And they have the potential, even though you've worked on the things we've talked about so far, seeking God, keeping your heart soft, receiving the Word that you hear into your heart, even putting down deep roots, if you allow competing ideas to remain in your heart that don't originate from the Word, then it is going to choke out the fruit that the Word might even begin to produce. You can begin producing some fruit. As a pastor, I've seen this, as I'm sure David has and others that have pastored. You've seen people come in, get excited, turned on to the Word of God. You know, even begin, obviously, putting down some roots and, and withstanding a few things. But they've got competing ideas in here about how, you know, uh, how they should live their life. I mean, in, in our younger generations in particular, it becomes a blend of scriptural idea with, with worldly things. And, you know, uh, I've actually almost gotten in arguments with uh, some younger folks that love the Lord, got excited, turned on, and then heard me say something one Sunday that made them realize they shouldn't be living together because they hadn't been married yet. They were planning to be married, engaged, living together. And uh, so I talked to them at one point, eventually it got... It got to where, you know, I did know them anyway, so I sat down with them and said, hey, you know, you really can't be doing this. Uh, you know now. I mean, it's my opinion that God's mercy is just, it's going to show up when sometimes it seems like it shouldn't, you know, if somebody doesn't know. Yet. But once they know, they're accountable for the word that they know about. And so, essentially... You know, the, you know, this is something that needs to change in your life. They wrestle with that. And, you know, and I've heard the commentary, well, you know, this, this, the, the world, and, and they acknowledge that it's the world. But people, people nowadays, you know, you got to know you're sexually compatible. So people live together. It's considered the, the smart thing to do because you just don't know unless, unless you do. And, of course, there's the pull. You love God, and you want to honor His Word, but there are competing ideas in the world. And this is not the only example. There are lots of examples. I mean, smoking dope, drinking alcohol. Oh, well, it doesn't hurt to do it a little bit. There's nothing in the Word that says just a, just a little bit's okay. Well, you know, it does say that for deacons not be a partaker of much wine. But if you're a leader, if you're a leader in the body of Christ, it says for bishops and those in a leadership or overseeing role, no wine. And boy, you talk about a compromise in the body of Christ. How many times I did a, a message, you know, this was in my, this was a while back when I was a little less uh, polished than I am now. Well, I did a, a message called the hog pen trail. And man, that would have burned the ears off anybody that was a sipping saint. And, but it's like, I absolutely, I can't abide people trying to live with one foot in each world, one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the, in the world. It is not going to work. Because the world will always choke out the fruit, any fruit that God word, God's Word has begun bringing. I've, like I started out to say, I've watched people come in to the church, get excited by the Word, you know, and man, just turned on and it starts producing fruit in their life. But this is a little thing they can't get rid of. And they try to rationalize this. Okay, well, you know, the tithe, that, that's, that's, old, that's old covenant. That's under the law. Oh, come on. It's not under the law predated the law by more than 400 years, almost 500 years. We see the tithe show up. It's a principle. 
Who are you going to serve, God or mammon? You know, and so, but it, it, there's so many ways people compromise the word because of worldly ideas. And, you know, you're going to pay the price for that in the sense that the promises of God are going to uh, be minimal, minimally, minimally, minimally. Uh, having trouble with my lips. Minimally realized, uh, if at all. Because the, the competing idea that you are leaving in your heart is going to choke the seed of God's Word out. So what do you do? What do you do about that? Word's clear. Any thought uh, contrary to the Word of God has to be rooted out. The Bible says, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, casting down every imagination. Every imagination remember generates a momentum in that direction casting down vain imaginations and every thought uh, that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ thank you and so basically God doesn't tell you to do that if you can't do it I've had people say I can't bring my thoughts captive oh come on your flesh doesn't want to your, your flesh gets titillated by thinking about that or thinking about that I mean, so what are you going to do? Stroke your flesh and your thought life? And then try to suck it up and live a religious resistance against that idea? Won't work. Preaching better than you're responding. So, these three categories of worldly ideas need to be dealt with. I'm running out of time to elaborate. But basically, you see, um, first of all, the cares of this world, just let me say, uh, this is fear-based thinking. Cares, anxieties are the product of the spirit of fear. People don't like to call it that. But you take cares about something when you don't feel like God's trustworthy enough to deal with it. Yeah. Or that God uh, you know, cares enough about it to deal with it. So you got to care. Now, you're taking the responsibility for something you shouldn't be taking because you can't do anything about it worth doing anyway by yourself. And so, cares of this world. I mean, you've got to be carefree. Cast your cares on Him. Uh, I mean, whole wonderful messages have been preached on getting rid of your cares. But again, it, it centers on your thoughts. And so, if you're going to get rid of your cares, you're going to have to at some point involve getting rid of the fear-producing thoughts, casting them down, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You must do that. Then we see the, that there are those that are categorized as deceitfulness of riches. I've done a, a series on deception, and one of the primary gateways of deception is money. Uh, the deception involved with money is apparent, made apparent from the two or three times in the New Testament that God says you're going to, the Word says you're either going to serve God or you're going to serve mammon. doesn't say you're going to serve God or you're going to serve Buddha or you're going to serve God or you're going to be an Islamist or you're going to serve God or be a New Ager. doesn't pick any other kind of religious pursuit. It says that the primary competition God has for your heart is money. He wants you to have money because it is a needed commodity in the body of Christ uh, to promote gospel ideas, God ideas, and the kingdom of God. He doesn't say money is evil. He says the love of it is what's evil, not money. He wants you to have it. He gives you richly all things to enjoy. We've heard Mark teach wonderful messages in recent times about, about money. God wants it for you. But it is also the potential competition for your heart that God says, you, you're going to serve me or you're going to serve mammon. Mammon is the God of money. And of course, that's Satan. Because Satan is the God of this world for this present age. 
And of course, uh, money is a medium of exchange that represents this world. It's all money is. Got enough money, you can acquire whatever the world has to offer. And so it is where your, your heart is going to be invested. Is it going to be invested in God or money? What do you think has the greatest probability of affecting your quality of life? Your bank balance, if it were large enough to acquire whatever you might think you want, whether it's houses, cars, airplanes, I don't know. It's never enough, by the way. I mean, you know, if he uh, blessed you with $100 million right now, your flesh would want more within a month or two, maybe a year, but it's never enough. It's like anything the world has to offer as being worthwhile, whether it's alcohol, drugs, uh, sexual activity, it doesn't really matter. There's never enough. Get a little bit, you want more. And so, are you going to serve God or are you going to serve mammon? And that's where the deception lies in money. It suggests that there's a way to be satisfied, content, and fulfilled without God. And it may, you know, the enemy never presents it to your thinking in those terms, but that's what it amounts to. There is a potential. To, I remember Brother Hagin saying one time, I think he was at our church when he said this, but he said something to the effect, and I, I need to dig that out from way back. Uh, but the biggest challenge of prosperity, because there was some hubbub going on in the body of Christ about prosperity, you know, and what the will of God for prosperity was. And Brother Copeland, you know, was getting some persecution from um, brothers in the Lord and others that were in the persuasion of faith. And Brother Hagin said, no, well, the, the biggest challenge of prosperity for a believer uh, is that it not begin robbing him of his hunger for God. Yeah. Because money can do that can make you feel so self-sufficient that your hunger for God begins to wane. And uh, so that's why it talks about the deceitfulness of riches. And so, of course, the antidote for this is giving, starting with the tithe. If you are a committed tither and giver and determined to hear the Holy Spirit's direction and what you do financially and giving, to support the gospel. That will break the power of money over you. And then lastly, we see lusts of other things entering in. Um, the word lust is actually translated covetousness in a couple of other passages. Uh, so it's really talking about self-gratification. Uh, we, we tend to uh, apply this term primarily to sexual um, desire, then it certainly includes that, but uh, it's more appropriately defined as self-gratification. Anything that is purely for moi, and you're driven to pursue that. And you start trying to connect it to something spiritual to make yourself feel good. But if it's purely self-gratification, then, you know, um, then it's problematic. I have a good example of that in my flying. You know, I had uh, wanted to, one thing I missed about, you know, the Lord brought flying back to me. I, you know, I gave, thought I had given it up completely because it was a thing that was keeping me from going into the ministry. Oh my, I got to finish this. I'm not going to share that. Let me just get to the end here and say that um, something you want, uh, you crave, uh, that it says lust of other things, a craving, a covetousness, a powerful desire that has no benefit beyond self-gratification. Um, it'll cause you to lose the fruit of God's word in your life if you allow that to remain. And I'm gonna, I was going to say that, you know, you, 
If it's a thing, then the best thing to do is give it away. Get rid of it. Give it away. I had a little aerobatic airplanes. You know, I started, I, I really, you know, I really, you know, I wanted a little aerobatic airplane because it was a good stress reliever for me. Uh, you know, I started out with an extra 300, which is used in international aerobatic competition. Very cool little airplane, do anything you wanted it to do in the air. But it wasn't big enough or fast enough to really go cross country anywhere, to go anywhere. You were stuck just going up north 25 miles and doing aerobatics and coming back, but you couldn't really go anywhere. And I thought it would be fun to go somewhere, so upgraded. Sold one, bought another, and each time you buy it, it's a little more expensive. And, uh, and then I, I found that I really missed, you know, flying uh, fighters. There's nothing more of an adrenaline rush than flying something that goes from brake release to 45,000 feet in two minutes. Then you push, <laughs> you push the nose over and it accelerates to twice the speed of sound. That's a wild ride. And, uh, and you know, I can remember sitting on the beach in Destin. We'd gone on a vacation, and I'm sitting on the beach in Destin, which is right next to Eglin Air Force Base. And uh, there was some F-22 Raptors, which is the new, um, you know, the new fighter. And they, they cruised out just offshore going to Eglin. And I can remember saying to Lynn, well, I did. I said to Lynn, man, that's one thing about getting older. I wish I could do that again. Because that's really, you know, uh, mostly 20-year-olds and a few early 30s that do that nowadays. And then it wasn't more than uh, uh, a week or two later, the Lord had shown me that I could have a fighter, a little fighter. They were on the market. And they were inexpensive enough that I could sell what I had and buy one. And, um, and the reason was they're Russian, Russian-built. And uh, so they're, you know, they don't meet any of the FAA requirements, obviously, manufacture or anything else. And so they retain an experimental category, so you can't take anybody in them, you know. But um, so anyway, and, and, and you can buy them fairly cheap because there's not a lot of people that can fly them. And so the market's small, and uh, so I bought one. And I realized that uh, that was becoming too important to me. It was becoming a distraction. I was making room to go fly it when, uh, when I first got it that I didn't really have time to make. There were other things that I needed to be doing. And uh, so anyway, it was a sub substanti substantial asset. And I gave it to the church. Got it off of my, uh, you know, out of my personal hands. But it's interesting, though, the church, unless they wanted to sell it, uh, of course, it, it, it was an asset on the books of the church, which was nice, and a, and a genuine asset that they could recover a substantial amount of money from. Uh, but they needed somebody to fly it to maintain the value of it. And guess who that was? <laughs> <laughs> so it worked out good for me. Uh -huh. But I say that just simply to make the point that there are things that you need to get, you need to get rid of. Because truly, in a very real sense, it's taking a level of priority that it shouldn't be taking in your life. And it's purely self-gratification. And there's no way you can rationalize your way around that. So talking about rooting up, uh, you know, rooting up competing ideas, all in any category, it comes down to your thought life Really, this is where you're going to, uh, you're going to nip it in the bud or not at all. You're going to cast down vain imaginations, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then you will produce 30, 60, 100 fold fruit. I told you yesterday the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the only fruit that we find defined clearly for us in the Word. It says that faith will produce fruit. What fruit are we talking about? Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, whatever the word says there. Uh, all of those things would say to you that you are in a place of faith now where you're ready to be a sower.
because you have the faith to reap the harvest. And this is where increase in the kingdom comes. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. How do you sow? Well, that's very, uh, you know, very important that you understand because the seed is in the fruit. You might think you have to go speak to somebody and say that by the stripes of Jesus you are healed or that, you know, whatever word you might actually go speak to somebody. But fruit is for someone else to partake of. And when they partake of this fruit, the seed is in it. And this puts a different spin on how we sow seed. I mean, if you, if you got it big in you about the love of God, and you go to somebody and say, you got to start loving a little better, bozo. Well, you've, you've told him the word of God. But, you know, if instead he gets to partake of the fruit of love in your life because you're kind and you're gentle and you're humble and you, and you are interested in helping him by praying for him or loving on him or encouraging him, and he partakes of that fruit, he's going to ingest the seed that goes along with it that is in that fruit, and that'll make all the difference in the world. If you tell somebody, or you can have the peace of God, Garrison about your heart and your mind. But it's obvious you don't have any peace. <laughs> That's not going to do much, you know, to, to, get the, to get the seed in that person. So we'll talk about how to sow and then, more importantly, how to reap uh, a harvest tomorrow. Thank you, and I'm sorry I'm, I'm, I'm run over here. But... <laughs>